He is risen. Happy Easter. Happy Resurrection Day. Am I too loud? I've never used one of these ear things. It's very disconcerting. Well, thanks for coming out. Um, we're going to talk about, as you can see, the resurrection. What a coincidence. Uh, probably no other subject that's been written more about and more studied than the resurrection. Just to give you one example, this 840-page book by Nigel Thomas Wright, N.T. Wright, 840 pages just on the resurrection of the Son of God. And he would be the first one to say, I didn't finish. <laughs> so we're going to talk about that this morning and, and just dig into it. We're not going to dig into it for 840 pages. We're just going to come to the minimal facts, and I'll explain what that means in a bit. But before we start, let me pray. Father, we do thank you that you have given us the church, and through the church came the word, through your apostles and inspired writers. We get the New Testament through inspired prophets and writers of the Old Testament. You've given us a complete understanding in as much as we need or can absorb to understand who you are and who we are in you. And for that, we are very grateful and thankful. We want to treasure the fact that you've done this for us. Help us today to understand more about who you are and what to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to start with um, what Paul says is the f most important thing, of first importance, he says. And we're going to start in 1 Corinthians 15. If you've got your Bibles or you can just follow along, I'm going to have it up on the screen here, I hope. There it goes. And I'm going to read this if you want to follow along. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as, as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I, or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, 
then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So you can see that Paul, who devotes an entire chapter, a very long chapter, 58 verses, uh, to this subject. And we're going to look at most of that chapter. Um, But we want to look at it with an idea of that the resurrection being the central issue of the New Testament. Uh, it really is, as Paul says, if it's not true, then it's really uh, a hopeless situation for us. We're just wasting our time. We should be somewhere else. This is all just vanity. So it's important for us to know, is this true? And as we think about this as an apologetic, that is a a defense of the faith, as we um, speak with friends and neighbors, relatives, co-workers, classmates, about uh, Jesus and the Bible and faith and Christianity, it would come down to this, that if Jesus is truly resurrected, is truly the Son of God, then that makes all the difference. And if he isn't, it makes no difference. So how can we get to the central fact of this? Uh, Peter wrote that we have an indestructible inheritance waiting um, us in heaven, made available through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's 1 Peter 1. Paul wrote that belief in Jesus' resurrection from the dead is required for eternal life. That's Romans 10.9. And as we just read, Paul was so adamant about the importance of Jesus' resurrection that he wrote, as we just read, that our faith is useless, useless, and we are still in our sins and will perish. So for Paul, and it seems like the rest of the New Testament writers, the central issue of Christian doctrine is this resurrection. And as we encounter skeptics and family, uh, uh, you know, in our families, in our friendships, in our co-workers, um, they often will erect barriers to this if we attempt to talk about it. It'd be perhaps one of the first things that comes out. And we see objections um, like this. Uh, There's no evidence that the Bible is inspired or written by God. It's a man-made document. Uh, Maybe the disciples claimed to see Jesus, but maybe they were lying. Uh, Or we know from science that miracles just can't happen. This raises the question about certainty. How certain can we be? And ironically enough, that gives us an opening. If someone questions the certainty or the probability of something, 
that's, a, that's an interesting approach because we can then say, um, you know, of all of the things we know, you think about what you know about the world. Most of what you know about the world is not from your direct experience, is it? You learned it. Someone told you about it. Who has been to the moon? Who has been to Mongolia? <laughs> Who was around when the American Revolution took place? Uh, well, none of us. As far as I know, nobody's been to the moon here. Uh, we didn't experience these things. We read about them. We understood from authorities that we gave credence to that these things happened in history. So almost all of our sources of knowledge come from what we would call authorities of, of that knowledge. Um, and in terms of probability, uh, when we think about the weatherman, for example, when we see it's a 10% chance of rain, how many of you take an umbrella? As opposed to when you see it's 90% chance of rain. Uh, and if it does rain, if there's 10%, well, weatherman said that there was a chance. Uh, so we, we live and act and move in these ideas of certainty all the time. And historical science is really um, no difference. Um, it has its authorities. It has its scientific methods of validating written documents. And when it comes to history, we can only speak of probability and not 100% certainty. Theologian Gary Habermas says, however, do not be discouraged that in historical terms, Jesus' resurrection cannot be established with absolute certainty. For one, all worldviews share the same challenge. Neither atheism nor any of the world's religions can be demonstrated with absolute certainty. Can we know with 100% certainty that all of us were not created just five minutes ago? With uh, complete with our memories and food in our stomachs? We can't prove that from a standpoint of certainty. We all believe that, <laughs> that we, were, we came here before five minutes ago. Second, Habermas says, even outside of worldviews, virtually nothing can be established with 100% certainty. Can we know that 100% certainty that George Washington was the first president of the United States of America rather than a mythical figure? Perhaps documents were forged and stories invented in a conspiracy to encourage the citizens of a new country with an inspired leader. We can know that this was not the case with a high degree of certainty because of the evidence that we have. Theologian historian Mike Lacona says, in his historical inquiry, professional historians talk in terms of the strength of probability that an event occurred. What we need to know to have a good certainty level could be called the minimal facts. In reference to Jesus' resurrection, we are inquiring to see what we can know with reasonable historical certainty when historical inquiry is applied. So we live on a continuum from doubt to certainty. And often our doubts uh, may feel very strong, but we doubt our doubts. <laughs> They're not 100% either, typically. <laughs> and same with certainty. Uh, we're somewhere in this 
on the scale, just about everything. So the minimal facts approach um, states that uh, it considers only those data that are so strongly attested historically that they are granted by nearly every scholar who studies the subject, even the rather skeptical ones. There are people, like uh, N.T. Wright isn't one of them actually, uh, he's a, I guess you'd say a general theologian, um, but he studied this for years, for a decade before he completed his book on the resurrection of the Son of God. Uh, there are other men and women who spend their entire careers, their PhD programs, all of their research and their writing on the history of the resurrection. Um, and yet, there are some who believe and some who don't. Some are still skeptical, even after they've studied it for uh, most of their adult life. But, the question becomes then, if we can get these experts to agree on one thing, largely, 90%, let's say, would that be sufficient? In other words, if 90% of the of, of doctors, on, oncologists, came to you and said, you have cancer and you need surgery, would that be enough for you to go ahead with the surgery? Would you need 95? Or would 80% be sufficient? Well, how about 60? What about 30%? You see, there's, there's, there's some sort of threshold that we have to reach. So the minimal facts takes the approach that we're going to go high, we're going to go 90%. That if 90% of all of the people who study this space uh, carefully agree on something, then that's sufficient for me to, to accept it. I'm sorry? Oh, reviews. <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know much about those things, those reviews, but... Uh, I do listen to authorities, uh, just as everyone else does. Um, okay, so the minimal facts approach uh, takes in consideration um, the discussions often get sidetracked, don't they? Uh, if we bring up the subject sometimes with friends or family or coworkers, then it often get, the field gets flooded with objections. Oh, well, um, uh, you know, they carry around some of these things all the time. Well, um, you know, it was trans the Bible is translated over and over and over again. You know, you can't trust it because it just got lost in translation. You know, so copies of copies of copies of copies. And so it's just, it's not, it's not, can't be trusted. Uh, what about six days of creation? Really? The whole, everything was created? Science shows that it was 20 billion years or something. So they, they roll out all of these objections uh, but it really uh, um, causes a problem because we start to you know, get overwhelmed with all these objections and then we want to try to answer them all and address them all without stopping to think, is that the core issue? How about we just assume that the Bible is an historical document just like any other historical document? We're going to take it for um, all its flaws, if it has any, 
Uh, but we're going to assume that it is an historical document, just like Tacitus or Suetonius or, or any other historian that we would look at in antiquity. And by the way, the Bible has way more manuscripts as a, as a document of historicity than any other of the historians that you would probably accept uh, who wrote about Plato or Socrates or who wrote about the history of the emperors of Rome. Um, the documentation they have, the survival of the, of the written works they have are much more fewer and much later in terms of their date and age. So can we at least agree that at a minimum, the Bible is authoritative as a historical document? I think most reasonable people would, would agree with that. And even if they can't accept it as a biblical witness, um, you know, they can at least accept it as a historical document. And also we have to understand too that people are influenced by skeptics, often who write in popular ways that um, their intention is to stir things up, is to get people uh, upset about something and to their point of view. You know, Bart Ehrman will write about, you know, if there's, there's you know, one gospel has two angels at the tomb, and the other gospel has one angel. And oh, that's a huge problem, you know. And, and, and we'll raise this as a big problem. Uh, but whether one witness saw one or one witness saw two, whether it was just one angel spoke so the other writer didn't mention there was another angel with them. It was like someone asked me, did you see Bruce lately? Yeah, I, I saw him and spoke to him last week. And then Sally comes back, you lied. Because Marcia was with you too. Well, no, I just we didn't. Marcia didn't speak to Bruce. I spoke to Bruce, and you know, so that's all answered. So, um, this perspective idea is is sometimes used as a cudgel that just isn't valid. So we're just setting our we're setting our view of the Bible as inspired or not aside for a moment, and and uh, taking it up from there. So it's. The minimal facts approach is just two criteria. Uh, Lacona writes that a skeptic ought not be allowed to merely cite apparent contradictions in the Bible and say that the resurrection has been disproved. The minimal facts approach builds a case using facts with a high degree of certainty, facts that any skeptic probably accepts. These facts need to be addressed. If a skeptic takes a position that even the majority of skeptical scholars reject, we can argue individually for the minimal facts that we are using. So if a skeptic prefers to take another position, that's okay. In doing so, the believer now has an opportunity to present much more data in support of the argument for Jesus' resurrection. The skeptic will need to respond. So, this gets us to the area of testimony. And some testimony is obviously stronger than others. Uh, and if we can get them to agree uh, about this minimal facts approach, then maybe we can evaluate the evidence of the events and facts as we know them. First up would be what kind of testimony would be uh, that is widely accepted would be most convincing. Testimony attested by uh, multiple independent witnesses is usually considered stronger than the testimony of one witness. 
affirmation by a, n- a neutral or a hostile source is more important and considered stronger evidence than someone who's, who's uh, friendly or neutral. You know, I mean, it's a difference if you're at a murder trial and uh, your mom gets up and testifies on your behalf. Okay, it's your mom, you know. What is your mom going to probably say? The jury's probably thinking, well, it's his mom. You know? uh, but if your neighbor gets up, who you've had a feud ongoing, and there's police reports about your conflict, and you, obviously all the other neighbors know this, you don't like each other, and your neighbor gets up and said, no, Joe wasn't anywhere near this when it happened. A hostile witness. Does that carry a little more weight for the jury? Probably does. Joe has every incentive to put you under the bus. But he's under oath, he's on the stand, he didn't want to go to jail for perjury, so he tells the truth. So a hostile witness, obviously, is much stronger. And the people usually don't make up details about stories they, they make up. You know, they, they don't uh, weaken their stories by, uh, for example, uh, women's testimony at the tomb, they were the first ones to discover it. Well, if you're going to make up a story about the tomb, back then, women were not considered uh, to have viable witness in a court of law. I mean, it's, it's a shame to say it, but that's the way it was back then. Uh, the Talmud actually writes that women's testimony is no better than a robber's. You know, so that's how they viewed women. So why would you put that? And that wasn't just unusual for the Jews, it was also common in other cultures in that time frame. So why would you put that? If you're going to make up a story, why wouldn't you put Joseph of Arimathea, this Pharisee, who owned a rich Pharisee who owned this tomb that Jesus was buried in, wouldn't he be a better witness to go to the tomb? And say, yeah, I went to my tomb and, opened, and it was open and Jesus wasn't there, he was gone. Wouldn't that be a better witness? So if you're going to wait, make a story up, you don't weaken it by putting in things that would weaken it. Then eyewitness testimony is usually considered stronger than second or third-hand source. It doesn't mean second or third-hand source can't be valuable. You know, if your neighbor comes in, here's another violent uh, uh, example, your neighbor comes in your door uh, and he's got a gunshot and he says, well, what happened, Joe? And uh, uh, well, Jim Bob down the street here, he shot me. And then Joe terminates his life there, there and then. Um, and you're in court. Well, you didn't see Jim Bob shoot Joe, but you heard Joe tell you that Jim Bob shot him. Would that be admitted as evidence? Yeah, it would. Would it be as strong as if Joe was there saying, yeah, he shot me? No, but... Joe in the round. So we have second and third hand sources, for example, where Polycarp, Polycarp a, a disciple of John, testifies to what John said about the resurrection and about seeing the Lord Jesus after he rose from the dead. Now it's second hand or even third hand in the case of other uh, first century church people, but it's still very powerful evidence. Uh, to the fact of the resurrection, or at least the belief that they held about the resurrection. And then an early testimony uh, that's very close to the event is much more valuable 
than something that's much later. You know, if somebody, if you have written sources that are 500 years after an event, well, it could be accurate. Uh, but if you have one that are five years or 20 years after the event, if you have writings that have people's names listed, that you can go and check, hey, so-and-so wrote this, and he said that you were there, and you saw this, can you verify that? That's much more powerful. So early witness is much better than later witness. So these are issues that we would want to get our skeptic to agree to. Let's take the first fact. We're going to look at four real quickly. The first fact, Jesus died by crucifixion. Now, first of all, there are some people that argue that that didn't happen. The Muslims are a good case in point. They believe Jesus was a holy prophet, but they don't believe he was crucified. But just taking um, these uh, sources that are non-Christian or non, well, unbelievers. Josephus, for example, writes, when Pilate, upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standing amongst us, had condemned him, that is Jesus, to be crucified. Tacitus, one of the probably the most famous uh, Roman historians, reports, and he was no friend of Christians, Nero fastened the guilt of the burning of Rome and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty. The extreme penalty was crucifixion, is what he meant by that. Suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procreators, Pontius Pilate. Lucian of Samosata, the Greek, he's a Greek satirist and writer, wrote, The Christians, you know, worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. Marabar, Marabar Serapion, writing to his son from prison, comments, Of what advantage came to the Jews by the murder of their wise king? seeing that from the very time their kingdom was driven away from them. Although Mara does not mention crucifixion as the mode of death, he does mention that Jesus was killed. The Talmud reports that on the eve of the Passover, Yeshua was hanged. Yeshua is Joshua in Hebrew. The equivalent in Greek is Jesus, or Jesus. Being hung on a tree was used to describe crucifixion in antiquity. Clearly, Jesus' death by crucifixion, I get my page to turn here, is a historical fact supported by considerable evidence. In more modern times, John Dominic Crossan, who is a uh, critical scholar who doesn't believe in, in the divinity of Christ uh, or uh, the resurrection, does write this about the, the crucifix, crucifixion. That he, Jesus, was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be. Bart Ehrman, who I mentioned before, critical scholar, also agrees that Jesus was crucified. And he writes this, The crucifixion of Jesus by the Romans is one of the most secure facts we have about his life. So clearly, from a standpoint of, of certainty, uh, the vast, vast majority 
well over 90% of scholars who study this area agree that the crucifixion was applied to Jesus and he did die. All right. Got to get it right set up. All right, here we go. The second fact uh, we want to look at is Jesus' disciples believed that he rose and appeared to them. There's virtual consensus among scholars who study Jesus' resurrection that subsequent to Jesus' death by crucifixion, his disciples really believed that he appeared to them risen from the dead. This conclusion has been reached by data that suggests that one, the disciples themselves claimed that the risen Jesus had appeared to them, and two, subsequent to Jesus' death by crucifixion, his disciples were radically transformed from fearful, cowering individuals who denied and abandoned him at his arrest and execution into bold proclaimers of the gospel of the risen Lord. They remained steadfast in the face of imprisonment, torture, and martyrdom. It is very clear that they sincerely believe that Jesus rose from the dead. First, Jesus' disciples claimed that he rose from the dead appeared to them. This conclusion can be reached from nine early and independent sources that fall into three categories. And that's what we're going to look very quickly now at. Um, the first one is the testimony of Paul about the disciples. Now, Paul, as we recall, he saw the risen Jesus sometime after, but probably more than a year uh, after Jesus had ascended. Um, so Paul had a lot of contact with the disciples, as we can see in his, in his writings, and his own writings and writings of others. And uh, he gives a testimony about their testimony uh, that we can consider strong evidence. Why? Paul would have been considered a hostile witness. Right? Paul had no intention of supporting Jesus' resurrection until he was on the road to Damascus. And something happened to Paul on that road. He didn't intend for it. He didn't ask for it. Uh, he didn't necessarily want it. But it happened to him, and something radically changed. And we've got to consider Paul's station in life. He was a young theologian, probably had the equivalent, some scholars think, of, of, of a double PhD by the time he was 21. He stuttered on studied under Gamaliel, one of the still considered the top five Jewish uh, theologians in history. Um, he was a prized pupil, very bright, very energetic, and very zealous. And he had everything in terms of Judaism and set before him, in terms of being an uh, authority and, and a leader of Judaism. He had everything to lose and nothing to gain becoming a Christian. And he even says that at, at some point, that uh, he counted it all as rubbish, even though he knew he was in a prime position. So his testimony is a very powerful one. Secondly, the oral tradition that passed through the early church, and three, the written works of the early church. And 
and we'll talk about those a little bit more. Now, the testimony, of, as I mentioned, uh, we saw that first now in 1 Corinthians by his own testimony. He, he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, that's the Aramaic name for Peter, which means rock, and so does Cephas. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom were still alive, and some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, that's the brother of Jesus. Uh, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. Those scriptures uh, down below there, um, we, we don't have time to go through all those, but uh, those are basically acknowledging his authority as an apostle with the other apostles. Um, yeah, so we, we, we just don't have time to get through them all, but he's basically saying, I'm, I'm one of these guys, okay? Um, All right. The second one we want to talk about is the oral tradition that preceded in the New Testament. A lot of people hear oral tradition, they get nervous. Oh, there's nothing in writing. <laughs> it's passed down. Well, we have to understand that the New Testament uh, did not create the church. <laughs> okay, the church created the New Testament. Um, and, and that's important to know. Now, how did they create it? Um, we saw, when we, when we read as verses 3 through 6 of 1 Corinthians 15, that piece right there, uh, based linguistically on the language itself, um, probably Aramaic translated to Greek in the, in the form of the Greek, leads scholars to believe, and other do, extra-biblical do, documentation, leads scholars to believe that that was an early creed. How early? Uh, many scholars believe that Paul probably learned this early after his conversion when he met with, with Peter and, and James and John. He learned that along the way. And he passed that along the way, obviously as he was telling the Corinthians, as I've told you of first importance, and then gives the creed. Creeds were important, and they're important today, as a summary of what we believe and why we believe it. That creed was very simple. Uh, we have creeds that are much longer, <laughs> more complex, that are much tougher to memorize. But they're important type of thing. There's also hymns that were written. Uh, there were story summaries. All these things were part and parcel that went into the creation of the New Testament. Eventually, people said, well, you know, you were an eyewitness or you were with an eyewitness. You know, Mark, you were with Peter. Why don't you write down what you saw and heard? Oh, okay, but that'd probably be a good idea. So 20, 30 years later, you know, these things that have come down to us, known as the gospel accounts, uh, were written. But surely Paul would have heard uh, these early creeds early on. So the idea that, that, it, that some scholars have tried to put forward that the resurrection and the divinity of God were something that were added later on, um, 100 years after the death of Christ or so. It's just not viable based on what we know about the early creeds, hymns, and story summaries. The third fact is the persecutor Paul was changed. Um, now you probably can't see that chart very well. I guess you can a little bit. It kind of gives you a listing of, uh, uh, of Paul's 
transference there from violent oppressor of Christians to uh, a lead apostle. Um, Paul changed from being a skeptic who believed that it was God's will to persecute the church to becoming one of its most influential messengers. In his letters to the churches of Corinth, Galatia, and Philippi, Paul himself writes of his conversion from being a persecutor of the church to one who strongly promoted the Christian message. However, his pre-Christian actions against the church and the conversion are also recorded in Acts 5. That was recorded, of course, by Luke. The story of Paul's conversion from persecutor to promoter of the church also appears to have been going around Judea within three years of his conversion. And Paul hints at this in an interesting statement to the Galatians. He tells them that three years after his conversion, he was not known by sight to the believers in Galatia. Rather, these believers were told, quote, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, verifying that others either knew or had heard of his pre-Christian actions against the church. Thus, Paul's notorious pre-Christian activities and conversion are multiply attested. We have Paul's own testimony, Luke's record in Acts, and a story that was circulated among Christians in Galatia. So we have to ask the question, what caused this conversion? Now, some skeptic scholars you know, do say, yes, he, he did have this conversion, that he did change, it was radical. And they will acknowledge, yeah, he, while denying that Jesus actually was resurrected, that Jesus was divinely God, they'll say, yeah, Paul believed that. They acknowledge that as historians, that yes, he did believe that. But they still don't necessarily believe. Okay. The fourth fact is Jesus' half-brother, James. James was a skeptic, as were his, the rest of his siblings, about Jesus. Uh, you can imagine how it works. Your older brother declares himself God. and <laughs> You're saying, yeah, right, sure, okay. I saw you. <laughs> but yeah, skeptic James was changed. The Gospels report that Jesus had at least four brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, plus unnamed sisters. Uh, Josephus, who we mentioned earlier, the Jewish historian from the first century, mentions the brother of Jesus who was called the Christ, whom name, whose name was James. Uh, James appears to have been a pious Jewish believer. Uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians condemns legalistic men claiming affiliation with James who were teaching the churches in Galatia that Christians had to keep the Jewish law in addition to keeping their faith in Jesus. And to resolve this issue, um, uh, Peter, Paul, and Barnabas spoke before a church council in Jerusalem, and James was the leader of the Jerusalem church, and he presided over that meeting. We sometimes call that a Presbytery meeting, uh, <laughs> if we're Presbyterians. <laughs> so um, it, it, he obviously was, was a figure there. Um, and there's a second century... Um, uh, Greek historian Hegesepius reported that James was a pious Jew who strictly followed the Jewish law. James, the brother of the Lord, succeeded to the government of the church in conjunction with the apostles. So he's verifying what we believe was true about James being the leader of the Jerusalem church. He has been called the just, James the just, if you heard that before, by all from the time of the Savior to the present day. 
Um, so we can say a lot more about James, but he also had a change. He did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah until after uh, the resurrection, after he saw Jesus. Um, as the ancient creed mentions, that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, that he appeared to James. And uh, Jesus obviously wanted to confirm to his brother, I am who I am. Okay, <laughs> Have a look. <laughs> Here I am. So we, we won't get into all, we have time to get into all the issues about James, which are pretty interesting, but uh, he definitely had a conversion. Uh, it's noted in biblical sources as well as extra-biblical sources in terms of his position within the church, his position before uh, his conversion and so forth, all have some historical basis that skeptical scholars, along with believing scholars, uh, agree with. So the fifth fact is, uh, I said there before, uh, and now there's a fifth one. The fifth one is probably less. It's not 90% of scholars, skeptical or believers. It's probably more like 75%. Um, but they have three factors here that they want to you know, talk about. Is a Jerusalem factor that this all occurred, the, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and, and the viewings of Jesus all occurred around Jerusalem, which is a pretty small area. And, and the main point of this is that the body had, you know, actually, if he had been crucified, it had been fairly easy for the Jews to produce that body. But they didn't. And it's, uh, it's remarkable in the sense that uh, they might, not, might even wanted to pull out any old body and, and declared that it was Jesus, uh, at least to, to put down this, this, this crisis. But as we know from the scriptures and, and extra-biblical documents, historical documents, that instead they concocted a story uh, that, they would, that the disciples stole the body. That would be their story. Why? Well, you know, it's like the dog ate my homework thing. You know, you know where's your homework? Well, the dog ate it. Well, you can't, you know, you know the teacher has no idea. Well, did, that really, did you really do your homework? <laughs> Or is that just an excuse? You're arguing from absence of evidence. Um, so the second one is, is uh, enemy attestation. I mentioned if your mother says you're an honest person, we may have reason to believe her with reservation, yet since she loves you, she might be biased. However, someone hates you, admits you are an honest person, we have a stronger reason to believe what is being asserted since potential bias does not exist. So we've already covered that a little bit. But enemy attestation uh, of the resurrection is, is pretty critical. So I'm going to end right there. We've got <laughs> two minutes left um, on such a big subject. But I would recommend to you a much smaller book than N.T. Wright's uh, called The Case for the Resurrection by Habermas and Laconia. It's a fairly new book. It's been out for a couple of years. Um, it's very digestible. They're very good writers, and they're writing for average folk like us. Um, and they lay out these five facts and a bunch more in, in their book. And, and you can read those for yourself. But they take the minimal facts of what can be agreed to by scholars who study this 
And if you have friends or relatives who very much their appeal is to authority and respect authority and teaching and scholarship, this might be a, an approach you can take with them and maybe go through it together with them. So finally, I'll end with... Uh, with going on in 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you that you have given us clear evidence through your word and thankfully also through the testimony of your spirit. Oh Lord, open the eyes of our hearts as Paul prayed for the Ephesians. We too need the eyes of our hearts open to see and believe and to strengthen and be steadfast and unmovable in our conviction. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.